Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Just End the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a very good show for you today. I'm going to be joined by former Jets wide receiver Rob Carpenter to break down the Jets head coaching search and some of his thoughts on the current team, specifically the offense, Robbie Anderson, Quincy Inouye, Sam Darnold. We're going to pick Rob's brand, all that stuff. Show me the money playoff picks for the divisional round today. And we rejoined by a friend of mine, Justin Diaz, who we heard from back in week number three. Justin was very entertaining his first go rounds. So I brought him back for the playoff challenge. We'll see how that goes. Seventh inning stretch coming back for the first time in a long time on this podcast. And give you seven headlines to watch in the Australian Open. The Australian Open tournament begins on Sunday and is the forgotten major because it's played in Australia. Matches start at about 10 p.m. Eastern time, and they are over by the time you're waking up. And we'll give you some stuff to watch from there. Stay tuned to the end of the show for this two-minute drill. I will talk about the national championship game, the absolute route. Clemson buries Alabama and wins their second national title in the past couple of years. We'll get to all that. we get it all rolling with this week's opening tip. We're going to talk about the NFL playoffs, what happened Wild Card Weekend, the big headlines, what to look forward to, all that coming up right after this. Three-yard attempt from the right hash mark. And, oh, he hits the upright again. That's impossible. And the Eagles run out into the field, but there's still five seconds. So they've got to get back. He does it again. Bottom line, it doesn't go through upright. It looks like it bounced off the crossbar as well. Oh my goodness. The Bears season's gonna end on a double doink. All right, and we're back. That call you just heard, courtesy of NBC Sports, Al Michaels, Chris Collinsworth, calling the play of the weekend, the double-doink missed field goal. Headlined the weekend as the four teams to advance to the divisional playoff round, the Indianapolis Colts, Dallas Cowboys, Los Angeles Chargers, and the Philadelphia Eagles. The defending champs live to fight another day. Let's go in order chronologically. Save the best for last. We'll start with, on Saturday afternoon, Colts-Texans. And this was, no doubt, the worst game of the weekend. ESPN probably disappointed again. The Texan defense was a complete non-factor in this football game. I swear, why is this game? The Colts were moving the football at will. T.Y. Hilton getting open again and again against the Texans. He owns that football team. Five catches, 85 yards. A big one early in the game set the Colts' first touchdown. And the Colts dominated that game from start to finish. They ran for 200 yards. The Texans gave up 82 a game in the regular season. They gave up 200 rushing yards to the Colts. That explains a lot of why they lost this game. Andrew Luck, not sacked at all. Underrated story with the Colts again. The improvement of that offensive line. They have been finally built a unit around Locke that keeps him upright, and when he's upright, he makes a lot of plays. He is a dynamic quarterback, and he's going to be a big force in the playoffs. It's hard to forget, the Colts were 1-5. They were 1-5. They got beat by the Jets at MetLife in Week 6 and looked dead and buried. Since then, they've won 10 of 11. The hottest team in the league by far, and 
they have a big test this weekend. They go to Arrowhead on Saturday afternoon, take on the Kansas City Chiefs. If you want to see offense, that's the game for you. Those two teams are going to play up pinball numbers on offense. The Chiefs defense we know is a sieve. The Colts are good against the run, but against the pass, they're susceptible, and the Chiefs have a ton of weapons in the passing game. So that might be a game where whoever has the ball last wins. Next up, Cowboys-Seahawks Saturday night. Cowboys hold on for a 24-22 win, advance to the divisional round where they go to L.A. and take on the Rams. Zeke Elliott, monster Cowboys running back, goes for 137 and a touchdown, four catches for 32 yards. Big deadline, big trade pickup from Amari Cooper, who's making everyone eat crow, by saying the Cowboys get up too much to get him. Seven catches, 106 yards, and the Cowboys move on. And a big part of the reason why, Seattle had no idea what they were doing calling this game. None whatsoever. Seattle ran the ball 24 times or 73 yards. 24 carries, 73 yards against a stout run defense. The Cowboy defense, very underrated, phenomenal team defense. They only got 94 yards a game on the ground the entire season. And they stifled that Seahawks offense. Chris Carson get nothing going. Rashad Penny had one big run, couldn't do anything. Mike Davis had a couple of catches, but was not a factor in the running game. And a lot of fun. I found this thread on Sunday on Twitter from Warren Sharp, who is a football analyst. And he went on a 10-tweet rant about the Seahawks play calling. Here's some of the highlights of that rant. Russell Wilson in that game threw 16 passes for 8.3 yards for attempt. The Seahawks had 20 runs, not by Russell Wilson. So 24 carries, 21 of them were not from Russell Wilson. They got 2.8 yards per carry. You know what that tells me? You should be throwing the ball. And another great stat from Sharp. Dallas was 31st in success rate against the pass in December. There's only 32 teams in the league. Dallas is second worst defending the pass on the stretch. So what do the Seahawks do? They run. They run. They run some more. And the first half, okay, Sharp says, okay, maybe you know you didn't know this offhand. For some reason, you missed this. But in-game, you should be able to make this adjustment and say, you know what? We can't run. We should pass. They ran for two yards per carry in the first half. In the first half, Russell Wilson averaged 14 and a half yards per attempt. No adjustment. They kept running. And you know who that offensive coordinator is in Seattle? Jet fans, our old buddy, Brian Schottenheimer. Got to love him. Nothing changes there. He coached himself out of that game and typical shoddy action there where there were a lot of run on first down, up the middle, and get nothing. Run on second down for minimal gain. Third down, we're third and seven. Russell has to make a play for us. That's not going to work. And the Cowboys move on, get a fun game with the Rams, who everybody's kind of sleeping on. I'll thoughts on that later. Next up, we go to the Sunday afternoon one o'clock window chargers ravens and that game was a complete domination from the charger defense i predicted this last week with joe dalizio in our pick segment the chargers were the first team to face lamar jackson twice and the unorthodox baltimore offense with lamar jackson the chargers had that tape on lamar jackson they studied it they found a way to contain him where they did that they played seven defensive backs on 58 of 59 snaps in this football game. Seven DBs means lighter, faster players at the linebacker level, and you counteract Lamar Jackson's speed. 
that worked brilliantly. They could not run the ball, and they forced the Ravens to try and throw more. And Lamar Jackson, that's not his strength. He cannot throw very accurately down the field right now. So at one point in this game, the Ravens only had six yards passing, which leads me to the number one question of the week. How in the world does John Harbaugh leave Joe Flacco on the bench? I understand if you were, say, the if you're the Chargers and your backup quarterback is Geno Smith, you're not going to feel confident in this. John Harbaugh's backup quarterback is a Super Bowl MVP. Moved through 11 touchdowns in the playoffs in 2012 and won a ring. The D was standing on its head. They were outstanding all game. The Chargers could not move the ball whatsoever. And they did nothing to help them. Nothing. That game was close for a long time. And you know what? Joe Flacco could have pulled that game out of the fire for Baltimore and gotten them a win because this is the playoffs. There is no tomorrow. If you lose, you're going home. I go all out to win that football game and worry about what happens afterwards after that. People forget in 2001, a guy named Tom Brady left the AFC Championship game against the Steelers and the Patriots struggling. Drew Bledsoe came off the bench, pulled that game out of the fire. They went back to Brady for the Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl, and I think, I'd say Brady's worked out okay. I'd say things have been good for him. And one thing I could not stand, I couldn't believe this, was the report during the game that from sideline reporter Tracy Wilson that Ravens DB Jimmy Smith was arguing with the team's fans who wanted Flacco and said, hey, Lamar Jackson got us here. You guys are being front runners." They're not being front runners. They paid hundreds of dollars to watch your team play football try and win this playoff game. They have a right as paying customers to say, you know what, we don't agree with the coach. We want to see Joe Flacco. It's not an indictment of Lamar Jackson, who is the youngest quarterback to ever start a playoff game. Lamar Jackson's a bright future. He will be coached up. He will get better passing the ball. But on that day, on Sunday, from 1-4, to four, he did not have it. Joe Flacco could have won that game for them. Instead, we'll never find out because Harbaugh is more worried about his future and protecting Lamar Jackson's feelings than winning the football game. And that's a big problem. Last but not least, the game of the week, Eagles-Bears, and everyone wants to talk about that missed field goal by Cody Parkey, and I swear, that look on Matt Nagy's face, those death daggers, that is burned in my brain right now, that image of Matt Nagy staring death at Cody Parkey. And I feel bad for the guy. Like Cody Parkey was not a great kicker. He just wasn't, but number one, the ball was tipped. It was not like he just yanked it completely to the left. That ball was tipped, and no doubt, doubt all the trajectory of it. Maybe it sneaks in the upright if he, if he doesn't get tipped. We don't know that. We never will. Another thing, Mitchell Trubisky was not very good for the Bears. He made a couple of plays down the stretch, but he was not very accurate, and his primary asset is his legs. He throws better than Lamar Jackson, but he's not a great pocket passer, and that's a problem. The Bears had opportunities to put up points. They did not. That's number two. Number three, the Bear defense, the new monster of the midway, they are getting a complete pass for their failure to stop the Eagles. The Eagles got the ball left, 448 on the clock, down five points, need a touchdown to win the game. What happens? The Eagles go right down the field, 12 plays, 60 yards, and get a touchdown on fourth and goal from the two. You cannot let that happen if you are one of the best defenses in the league. Khalil Mack 
who everyone has sung the praises of for having a great impact on the Bear D. He was invisible on that drive. He was visible that game. He didn't really do much at all. And lastly, bad on the Bears fans. Bad on the people wishing death threats on Cody Parkey. It is not just on him. Yes, he missed the kick. Yes, he the Bears went home because he could not make a 43-yard field goal. But you know what? Not just him. Mitchell Trubisky did not make enough plays. Matt Nagy got out coached. The Bear defense gave up a big drive down the stretch. And I'm warning you guys, you Bear fans, there's regression next year. That team is not going 12-4 and again. The quarterback needs to play much, much better in order for you to get back to where you are. The quarterback needs to improve by leaps and bounds. And nothing. The Vikings are going to be better. The Packers, without the dysfunction of marriage of McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers, they're going to be better as well. And you're playing a first-place schedule, which means you're getting the heavyweights of the division and you're getting some very tough teams coming in there. I screams to me, regression, take the under next year with the Bears. I think I would like to be proven wrong because I like that football team, but I would not be surprised if they have this year's Jaguars who make the big leap and then just fall off a cliff for the next season. And as far as the Eagles are concerned, the magic continues. Nick Foles rides them. Nick Foles brings them back, leads them to the win, and now they go to New Orleans. The same New Orleans team that blew them out of the building back in the middle of the season. Since that game, the Eagles have gone 7-1, and one, I believe, 6-1, and one, somewhere around there, and be a fascinating football game. The Eagle magic is back, and we'll see if it has enough to topple the top team in the NFC, and my pick to win the Super Bowl adds up this moment. Up next, we're going to talk NFL some more, talk a little more locally, talk Jets with former Jets wide receiver Rob Carpenter right after this. I think I would like to try and get my tight end involved, who's at Donald's right. Darnold flushed out. Williams giving chase. Darnold escapes, trying to buy himself some time. Fires, end zone. It's caught. Anderson. Incredible play by Darnold. And here come the Jets. Hey guys, Mike Phillips here. Before we get into our interview with Rob Carpenter, just a little programming note. Rob and I spoke on the phone on Wednesday afternoon. Just a couple hours before the Jets announced that they hired Adam Gase to be their next head coach. Gase coming over from the Miami Dolphins with a 23-25 and 25 record. As such, Gase was not discussed in our interview when we talked about Jets coaching candidates, but there's still plenty of good material here, so be sure you listen, check it out, and enjoy this interview with Rob Carpenter. And trust me, you will get my thoughts on Adam Gase on next week's show. Trust me, I am not thrilled with the hire at all. But that's discussion for another day. Until then, enjoy my chat with Rob Carpenter. All right, and we're back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. You just heard that call, the Jets play of the year, courtesy of CBS Sports. Uh, Spiro Diaz and Adam Archuleta, the Sam Darnold, whirling, darling touchdown pass to Robbie Anderson in Buffalo. The Jets need a new head coach. I'm joined today by a former NFL wide receiver. He played five years in the league, fourth, drafted in the fourth round in 1991 out of Syracuse. Spent three of those years with the Jets. I'm joined today by Rob Carpenter. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Mike. Rob, thanks for coming on. Before we get started, I want to get your perspective on this. As a former player, who you saw a coach get fired in 1993 when Bruce Koslick got fired and the Jets brought in Pete Carroll. 
What's it like from the player's perspective when the team tells you that we're moving on and getting a new coach? Um, it's a quick transition. Uh, for the most part, the coaches get fired when we're going into the off season, so we don't really have a lot of uh, communication with the new coach at first. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you basically have like about a month before uh, anything goes on with the, the communication between the players and the coaches, except for the big time guys. You know, they go speak to those guys. Oh yeah, for sure. And Todd Bowles out after four years. We heard a lot of the players on this team, Jamal Adams, Leonard Williams, specifically a couple of them, always like talked up Bowles, talk about how great he is, how they love playing for him. But you always heard the criticism from like the media type saying like you know like. If they love him, why don't they play hard for him? Like, is there like a disconnect between the media and the players in terms of like the players love the coach, but the effort doesn't necessarily come through the media types? Uh, it can happen both ways. Uh, the guys actually would love the coach. Um, it's just that at certain times, they do realize when things are being talked about, especially like uh, the way it went, went on with, with Coach Bowles. Uh, he was basically a, a, a dead man walking. So the players are like, you know what? We'll go out, do the bare minimum. It's not going to matter whether we win or lose So uh, because he's not going to be here. So, But then also you have guys that are on the field um, that are that are trying hard because they know that there's 31 other teams that are well, watching these games and, and scouting at the same time. So they're going to play hard just, to, just in case they need to uh, play for another team uh, audition for another job yeah they put film on tape as that coach would like to say uh, exactly and but the guys who actually who know they're going to be around those guys can actually just kind of filibuster their way through, through the remainder of the, the season just trying not to get hurt okay now the Jets looking for a new coach right now the attention of Christopher Johnson Mike McCagan had done eight interviews one of them is off the board Cliff Kingsbury got hired by the Cardinals yesterday if they went to you and said Rob here's our list of guys which of this one? Which of these guys should we hire? Who would you tell them to hire? Um, I would actually go with two of the veterans at first. So, uh, two coaches who, who have been around. One of them Caldwell and the other one McCarthy. McCarthy would be first. Then uh, then Caldwell. Um, people tend not to think Caldwell is a winning coach, basically because he's kind of a quiet, reserved guy. But wherever he's gone, he, he's been a winner. Um, McCarthy, you see what he's done in Green Bay. The only thing I have an issue with. McCarthy is uh, he seems to pass up on a running game uh, and he relied a lot on Aaron Rodgers and then he got to a point where those two were kind of bumping heads and it was just not for him to move on but can't pass up a guy who actually has won a Super Bowl that's one of the hardest things to do in the NFL as a head coach and he's done it yeah I can imagine you if he walks in that locker and says guys I've been to the Super Bowl I've won the Super Bowl I've been to the playoffs nine times follow me and I'll get us there I'm sure that takes a lot of weight in the locker room it carries a lot of weight because that's the that's the pinnacle. That's what guys are actually striving for. And I actually have a coach who's done it. He's had the game plan to get it done. And so you're going to listen for for a while. If they're going to not hire those those veteran coaches, my personal pick would have been uh, Mark Rule uh, and or Munchak. Uh, Munchak has been around. He's had a lot of success with his passing game. Uh, and you see what he did this year as the offense coordinator in Tampa Bay. Those guys were taking the top five in the passing game and you know, with Fitzpatrick and James Winston, and that's saying something. 
Yeah, I want to go back to Caldwell for a second because I know a lot of people are not talking about him. I feel like he has gotten a raw deal in his previous two jobs because in Indianapolis, he went to the Super Bowl his first year there. He got fired after Peyton Manning went down, and nobody could have won with that team. And then Detroit, he has a winning record there. He gets fired, and the Lions regress. I feel like he is a good candidate, but I just feel like he's not like a sexy hire. That's not. I think they are concerned about selling the hire to the fan base. That's the big thing that disturbs me a lot. Um, you have a guy who actually, as you just said, he was in the Super Bowl with the with the Colts. He coached Peyton Manning. Um, he knows what it is to be around a great quarterback. He coached Matthew Stafford, and as you just said, since he left, they regressed, and so did Matthew Stafford. So uh, he isn't the sexy hire, and it seems like that's what the fan base wants, the media wants. They want this guy who's going to be this this big, sexy, shiny object instead of guys who are proven winners. Yeah, for sure. Let's go to the current team for a little bit. One other thing, Colin, I want to get your opinion on was after the end of the regular season, Jamal Adams was in the locker room talking to the media, and he said that the Jets needed more dogs on this team and better quality guys who wanted to fight for this team. If you were a player in that locker room, would you be bothered by what he said, or would you support him? I would support him, and I would say he's exactly right. Um, the guys who he was probably referring to as, as the dogs on the team, they know who they are, and the guys who know that they were slacking, they know who they are. So if you had a problem with what he was saying, then you probably don't need to be around. Um, so me personally, I wouldn't wouldn't have a problem with uh, with Jamal Adams saying that at all if I was his teammate. Yeah, Jamal Adams one of the leaders on this team. One guy who could, should be a leader on this team going forward is Sam Darnold. He had a very interesting rookie year. Having watched him go from his start in Detroit where he throws a pick six the first play of the game to how he ended the year, how do you think he did his first season? I think he did well. Um, he actually kind of plateaued a bit during the middle of the season and Donald having to sit down uh, after his injury uh, helped him out drastically and it made him see the game from a different perspective slowed everything down for him and we all see that when he came back to the lineup he was a different quarterback so um, from that point on I think he and the stats show that he was probably one of the better quarterbacks in the league and hopefully he can take that going into this offseason and and improve on it uh, going into next year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing high progresses in year one to year two. I just wanted to ask you, since you are a wide receiver, the Jets have two interesting guys on their team, Quincy Anunwa and Robbie Anderson. There's been a lot of complaints among the fan base saying they don't have a true number one. Do you think either one of those guys can be that, or do they have to go get somebody? Well, we have two guys that are uh, the type of receivers that they are. I think Robbie has shown that he can be a number one receiver. Uh, and I think he proved that over the second half of the season. Uh, when Darnold actually came back, he was his number one guy. Quincy is actually that guy who can be an in-between one and a two. And on a team like this, you don't necessarily need one if you have guys who are like that. Uh, because the defense is not going to be able to key on either one of those guys uh, to take one away. Um, because they're good enough to be uh, number one receivers. Uh, and if they go out and get another uh, top receiver, and this is just hypothetically speaking. For instance, if they went out and traded for Antonio Brown, uh, those guys would excel even more because that's going to put so much more pressure on the defense because those guys are uh, Quincy and Robbie proved that they can actually be the number one guys on the team. Yeah, you brought up Antonio Brown. I think I saw uh, Vegas odds, I think from betonline.ag, that they were, I think, three to one favorites to land him. Yeah, do you think that would be a good idea for the Jets considering all the stuff that's going on with him off the field and the whole incident with Ben Roethlisberger? I don't have a problem with it. 
Uh, I, I know that the Jets are probably going to go hard after his former teammate, Le'Veon Bell. And bringing Antonio in with Sam uh, will help him out tremendously. Uh, that's a pretty potent offense if you put the guys around him that you know that we just just mentioned. And I don't think Antonio will make that many waves if he was here because he actually saw what was going on in Pittsburgh. And Sam has not been. Uh, Antonio and Ben seem to have uh, dust-ups, you know, every year. And I don't think Sam is that type of guy to point fingers, call guys out. Uh, when they're not doing well, he's the type of quarterback that basically will say, you know, put everything on my shoulders and we'll go from here. Absolutely. Before we go, let's go into the this week's playoffs a little bit. I follow you on Twitter. You're a very active tweeter during the playoffs. So which of the games this weekend are you the most excited to watch? Well, two. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually uh, anticipating watching the Kansas City Colts game. And I'm also, uh, I want to see what Dallas can do with the Rams. Uh, one of the reasons why is I think the Rams are actually slowing down and Dallas defense is really good. And I just want to see uh, what Sean McVay can come up with to, to try to move the ball against that Dallas defense. I'm actually just anticipating just to see the fireworks in a Colts-Chiefs game. And, you know, I don't think either one of those defenses is going to be able to stop each other. I think that might be one of those games where it comes down to uh, whoever has the ball last is going to win the game. Yeah, I'm very excited for that Colts-Chiefs game as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if you had to make a Super Bowl pick today, who would you go with? What two teams are there and who wins? Uh, It's a little tough, but I'd probably go with New Orleans and... Okay, and who would win out of those two teams, in your opinion? Uh, in my opinion, I think New Orleans would win. And uh, the only reason why I say that is because I think New Orleans' defense is much better uh, than Kansas City's. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it would be a super high-scoring game. Uh, I think New Orleans would kind of be able to slow down Kansas City just a bit. Um, and I don't think New Orleans would totally be able to go up and down the field against them. It'll be a fun game to watch. Uh, but I, I think New Orleans would actually come on the top of that game. Yeah, that was my pick last week on the podcast with, with my with uh, friend Joe Dalloway. I actually picked that Super Bowl with the Saints to win, so I feel a lot better knowing that a former pro athlete agrees with my assessment. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. All right. And hopefully, if it does happen, it's actually a good game to watch. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Rob, thanks for all the time. Before you run, you know, anybody know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? You guys can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Rob Carpenter 81. Or follow me on Instagram. I'm rcarp81. <clears throat> Those are the best ways to follow me on social media. All right, Rob. Thanks for the time again. Hey, no problem, guy. There you have it. That is Rob Carpenter, former NFL wide receiver, talking the New York Jets head coaching search and where they can go from here, along some issues about the current team. That's some interesting stuff to say. Up next, showing the money, NFL playoff picks for the divisional round coming up right after this. Show me the money. All right, and we're back. Show me the money. NFL picks for the divisional playoff round. Joining me today is a guy we have not heard from since week number three. He made NFL picks then, had a very lengthy reign about the state of the New York Giants. Justin Diaz is back with us. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mike. Happy New Year. 
happy playoffs, which is a foreign concept to us Jets and Giants fans, unfortunately. But how are you? I'm doing good. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Before we get started, did you last time you were here, you had quite the rant about the <laughs> New York Giants. I pulled a clip from that. I want to see let you hear that and see what you think and see if you agree with your, your assessment now. Here's that clip from Justin Diaz in week number three. The Giants fans and the I feel like the, the organization, the fans adopt this mindset that the Giants are this amazing organization that can do no wrong. We're, we're, due, we're, we're owed success and, and it's expected. I, I like the mindset of expecting success, but at the end of the day, you have to evaluate your roster and, and see where it stands and make decisions accordingly. You can't look at a roster where you've made the playoffs once in the last six years. You had one fluke season where you went 11 and five two years ago. Maybe Giant fans don't want to hear that. That was more every game, every win was a as a one or two point win where you scratched it out. The offense did nothing, and Beckham took a, a five yard slant 80 yards to the house. That's not sustainable success. What do you think? I think that guy sounds like a genius and probably also very good-looking as well, if I had to guess. But, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, my mindset hasn't changed at all. It, and it's not a knock on Saquon Barkley. I, I think he's anything beyond anyone could have even expected, it, even as hyped up as he was. I mean, I've never personally seen a more talented running back. The, the guy's unbelievable. He, he's, it's, it's, it stinks to have to say it was the wrong pick because – why, I honestly, once the season is over after week six, you, know, you, you could even argue it's over sooner than that. Once the season is over, I honestly kept watching Giant games just to see what Saquon Barkley would do. Because every single week he did at least one or two things where you're like, oh, oh my Lord, how did he do that? And he's unbelievable. So at the same time, it was definitely the wrong pick. And I don't even think that's disputable. They... I mean, I could reiterate the same points I made during my rants in week three, but long story short, the roster is, is just a terrible roster, top to bottom, save for a couple of skill players. And this is a draft that was loaded with quarterbacks, had a stud offensive lineman in Quentin Nelson, stud pass rusher in Bradley Chubb, who had a fantastic year. We have none of those things. And running back is the easiest position in the league to find. You're obviously not going to find someone like Saquon Barkley, but at the end of the day, you can get by with a, an average, just just a guy at running back. You, you rarely can get by with just a guy at quarterback. Let's move on. Quarterback. Who is playing quarterback next year for the Giants? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a question that makes my blood pressure rise. I, I think it's going to be Eli Manning. I, I, I love Eli. Yeah, he gave us some great years. He's clearly shot. Has no, he has even less mobility than he did. Even, at his peak, he was probably the slowest player imaginable. It got worse somehow. Has no arm strength left. He, he's skittish, even more skittish in the pocket than he was at his worst. Uh, I, but I think he's going to be the quarterback because this is what they signed up for. Second overall pick. I, I, I've said this a million times to my friends. So I said it on your podcast last time. They had the golden rare opportunity of a very high pick and a loaded quarterback class. That doesn't happen. It's very rare, and they blew it. Now you're stuck with the sixth overall pick. You have one guy, Dwayne Haskins, who people are starting to get. They're starting to hype him up. Maybe he's good. Maybe he's not. 
even if he is the guy, you're probably going to have to trade up to draft him. And who knows? I mean, he doesn't. I, I'm I'm not a college quarterback expert. I'm far from it. But based on what I've been reading and hearing, it, you don't get the same sense that he's the same level of prospect as a Sam Darnold, as someone like Baker Mayfield. Um, so it, it's going to come down to does Dave Gettleman and his team like Haskins uh, as a prospect? If they do, if they're really sold on him, then you have to pull the trigger and, and trade whatever it takes to get him. So we'll see. I, I If you don't like Haskins, do you take a stopgap like Dick Foles, Teddy Bridgewater. It's it, all unappealing options, and, but that's what they signed up for when they decided to take a running back rather than a, a franchise-caliber prospect like Sam Darnold. Yeah, well, we could go on the Giants all day. Let's get to the playoff picks challenge. Joe D'Aloisio was here last week for the wild card team of challengers, and he put up four points last week. He got his number four pick correct with the Philadelphia Eagles pushed on his three-point pick of the Seattle Seahawks and lost on his two-point picks of the Houston Texans and the one-point pick of the Baltimore Ravens. I also got four points. I pushed on the Seahawks getting with the four points, right with the Eagles on three, right with the Chargers a one, lost on the Texans with two. Result, we are tied four to four entering week number two. So brand new slate for us, Justin. I plan on getting 10 points, so <laughs> I, I hope you, uh, you have some good picks up your sleeve. Yes, I do. So before, let's, let me get us into the pick more. We are going to start with the games this weekend on Saturday in picks divisional round, 4.30 on NBC. We have the Colts and the Chiefs in Kansas City. Justin, who are you taking in that game? I am taking the Colts with uh, four-point confidence. Full disclosure, I have them winning the Super Bowl. I have a couple of bucks on it, so I, I do have a vested interest. I love the way Marlon Mack's running the ball. I love the way Andrew Luck is playing. The line is unbelievable. Uh, their defense is playing very well. This is the most well-balanced team Andrew Luck has had by far. I actually like the Colts to win outright. I think Andy Reid will botch uh, the timing at some point. Um, and I, that's who I'm going with. All right. I'm actually going against you on this pick. I'm taking the Kansas City Chiefs with three confidence points. I love the Chiefs in this game. They're, they're getting slept on because they didn't end the year strong, but they are home. They have Patrick Mahomes, MVP of the league, in my opinion. They have a lot of weapons to test the Colt defense on the outside. The Colt D is strong against the run, and they held the Texans down, but they can be exposed on the outside. And you got Tyree Kill, Sammy Watkins, Kelvin Benjamin, Travis Kelsey. I think it's too many guys for the uh, Chiefs to cover. This is a game where it's the last team with the football wins the game. And if the Chiefs have it last. I think they win the game. I take the Chiefs with three points. Fair enough. No doubting uh, the Chiefs' offense is unbelievable. And Mahomes should be unanimous MVP. Okay, let's go on to the Saturday night game. Cowboys-Rams, 8-15 on Fox. Justin, where are you going? Rams are seven-point favorites. I am going Cowboys plus seven. Um, I, that's my one com- one point confidence game. I, I think it's a. I think it'll be a close game either way. I like the Cowboys to keep it close by giving the ball to Zeke, at least I'd imagine twenty to twenty five times. If he's not getting the ball a lot, something's gone wrong. Uh, their defense is playing great. Hopefully for them, they could keep the Rams in check a little bit. I do think the Rams will win the game, but I think the Cowboys will keep it close. 
I'm also going against you on this one. I'm taking the Rams and the seven points. That's also wow. my one-point pick. I feel like the Rams, like the Chiefs, getting slept on. They had a not-so-great finish this season, but they had the week off. They're home. I know there's a lot of Cowboy fans in that building, but the Rams' offense is explosive. Dallas' D is very good, but so is the Rams' D. And if they can take Zeke out of this game, I think that makes the Cowboys too one-dimensional. The seven is a tricky number. is why it's only my one-point pick, but I do think the Rams win this football game. Fair enough. All right. On game number three, Sunday, 1 o'clock, Chargers, Patriots, 1 o'clock, CBS. Patriots are favored by four. Where are you going here? I'm going Chargers plus four. That's going to be my uh, three-point pick. I don't feel strongly about this game either way. Um, I do think the Patriots, this is finally the year they're not that good. We, we've been all saying this for years, and then they make it to at least the conference title game, if not the Super Bowl. I just like the way the Chargers are playing both sides of the ball. I'm rooting for Phillip Rivers. He's, he's been a great player. I think he, he deserves uh, to have a nice run here. I, I, it probably might be his last, last and best chance to make a Super Bowl run. And that's obviously not a reason for actually taking them, but that's who I'm rooting for, so that's who I'm going to go with. Okay, I'm also taking the Chargers in this game. I'm taking them as my two-point pick. I love the Chargers in this spot here. I think the number is good. It's four points. The Patriots have not been blowing anybody out aside from the Jets over the last few weeks of the season. <laughs> and that doesn't count. That does not count because the Jets didn't even show up for that game. I don't think they got off the bus, to be honest with you, in that game. But back to the game at hand. They played well in Baltimore. Their offense was not great there, but they defense they're facing now in the Patriots is much, much, much worse. And the Patriots, they look old. They look slow. They do. They Lamar, I mean, Rob Gronkowski looks like he needs a stretcher when he gets on the field. <laughs> and, and the Patriots, losing Josh Gordon's a big deal for that offense. And Very big deal. Couldn't agree more. They don't have a legitimate outside threat without him. No, they're back to the old game of throwing underneath, make some plays, and take care of business that way. And I think the Chargers have too many weapons. I think Chargers are going to get that game. If they don't, they'll be right in it. I hope so. I would love to see the Patriots finally start to, that, that dynasty start to crumble. All right. Last but not least, Sunday, 440 on Fox, Eagles Saints. Saints are favored by eight points. Justin, where are you going with this game? I'm going with the Saints minus eight. That's my uh, two-point game. I can't in good conscience as a Giants fan who despises the Eagles more than anything in life. I, I can't pick them. Uh, if this doofus Nick Foles goes on another run, I, I just probably will stop watching football. Um, I, I think the Saints are just the best, most well-rounded team in the league. Drew Brees with a great running game is very tough to stop. Uh, I think of the Eagles, it's impressive what they've managed to do, given how many injuries they've had. They're on the back of quarterback. Their whole secondary is decimated. I think the Bears at the end of that game started to show you can pick on uh, the Eagles' corner Maddox a little bit. Hopefully the Saints saw that and take advantage. I think the Saints should win this one pretty easily, but also knowing how the Eagles have been going the last two years, I wouldn't be shocked if Nick Bowles pulls some BS magic out of his uh, not, I was about to say a bad word. But, yeah. <laughs> at his rear end. Yes, at his rear end. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually going with the Eagles in this game as my four-point ah. pick. I think the number is too big for me. The Saints were very sluggish down the stretch. And ask them to cover eight points. You know they are at home and they play much better at home. I think that's too big for me. The Eagles have some kind of magic going on right now. I mean, everything's going right for them. Nick Foles. Yeah, it really depresses me. Nick Foles showed up in December. Everything just goes according to plan. They win the game. I don't think they're winning here. 
I think the Saints will win this football game, but you're asking to win by at least double digits in order to cover this number. And I think the Eagles will be right in the football game most of the way. I feel like they're a much better team right now. They figure some stuff out on defense. Granted, the Bears are not the best test of defensive ability, but they did shut the Rams down a couple weeks ago in L.A. So the picks for the week, the reset. Colts, Chiefs. Chiefs are five and a half point favorites. Justin has the Colts with a four confidence level. I have the Chiefs at a three confidence level. Cowboys, Rams. Rams vary by seven. Cowboys by one confidence for Justin. Me, Rams, one confidence. Chargers, Patriots. Patriots pair by four. We both are taking the Chargers. Justin, confidence level three. Me, confidence level two. Last but not least, Eagles, Saints. Saints favored by eight points. Justin's taking the Saints with a confidence level of two. And I am going big Nick for four points. Philadelphia Eagles. And those are our picks for the divisional round of Show Me the Money. Justin, before you go, last time you were here, we also talked about the New York Yankees and what they were looking like heading into the playoffs. We have seen most of the offseason at this point. On a, on a scale of A to F, where you grade their offseason? We've seen most of the offseason from a purely calendar standpoint, but we both know that a lot of offseason is left, given who's out there. I have to say incomplete. I know it's kind of a cop-out, but it's really the entire thing hinges on Manny Machado. I, I love the James Paxton pickup. I mean, I was disappointed they didn't sign Patrick Corbin. I think they cheaped out there, and there's really no excuse for the Yankees to ever cheap out. That's a whole other conversation for a different day, but let's just go with what they did. James Paxton, I, I, think, he's, I think he's a little bit overlooked. The Yankees, I think that was a very good pickup. He had almost 12 strikeouts per nine. Doesn't walk a lot of guys. That, that think two and a half walks per nine. Obviously, the injury history is a little bit of a concern, but hopefully he can you know, string together a healthy season. I think that was a great pickup. I liked bringing back Jay Happ. He had a good season. He, he's, he's shown he could pitch in the AL East. I like bringing back Britton. Um, Robertson going was a bit of a disappointment, but they're still looking at Adovino. I think he'd be a perfectly fine replacement for Robertson. But now, sign Machado. There's no excuse not to. 26-year-old superstar at a position of need. And, and that's the, the thing I don't think a lot of people really, a lot of Yankee fans I've spoken to, they, they say, well, it's a luxury. Their lineup's already loaded. There's no such thing as luxury when you're in a division with the Red Sox. They won 108 games. There's no reason to think they won't do that again. Sign him, I'll... I'll happily call it an A offseason. Yeah, I hear that. They do need to sign him. This is ordinarily this is the part of the show where I would plug social media accounts, but you do not have any Twitter or Instagram people to follow, correct? No, I don't. I, I'm not uh, I'm an antiquated person in that in that regard. Just a Facebook, but that's nothing exciting. Yeah. I'm surprised you're not on Twitter. I feel like Twitter is made for you. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll I'll get on Twitter and call it like uh, Justin's ramblings or something. Yeah, well, we can workshop the handle off, off air. But, Justin, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. This was a good time. Thanks for having me on. Enjoy the games this weekend. You too. That was Justin right. Diaz on your NFL pick for Show Me the Money. Up next, our Saturday inning stretch. We're going to give you seven headlines to watch at this upcoming Australian Open right after this.
All right, and we're back with the seventh inning stretch. We're talking about seven topics relating to specific sporting events. And this week, seventh inning stretch, we focused on tennis. Test season kicked off a couple weeks ago, very quietly, little fanfare. And the first major of the year next week in Melbourne, the Australian Open. This is a hard event for Americans to follow because of the time difference. The matches there start at about 10 p.m. Eastern time. And they will end usually about 7 or 8 in the morning Eastern time. So overnight in the Eastern time zone, slightly better on the West Coast, but not much. And you don't get to see a lot of the action. The men's final, the finals actually, 3.30 in the morning they start. That's not great. So a lot of it is done through highlights. Maybe if you're if you're a tennis man, you get up early for one of those days. But I'll give you some headlines. I'll do some work for you. I've done some research. i got the headlines for you to keep an eye on. Let's start out here with our first topic. One. How does Naomi Osaka follow up her breakthrough showing? Lastly, remember, and for most of the casual tennis fans, that is the U.S. Open back in September. Naomi Osaka upsets Serena Williams, has ice water in her veins, beats the 23-time Grand Slam champion, wins her first major to massive controversy because of the whole coaching fiasco and the warnings that Serena got into the argument with the chair umpire. Osaka followed it up and made the final of a year-end event in Tokyo. Her game is made for this service. The hard courts in Melbourne are a good setup for her. And don't forget, she's only 20 years old. It takes ice water to stare Serena Williams down in a major final and come out on top. And she showed that firepower. Watching how she handled her first major as a slam champion is going to be fascinating to watch. That's the number one story. I cannot wait to see how she plays. That's going to be a lot of fun. Let's go to our next headline. Two. Osaka's opponent in the U.S. Open, Serena Williams. Can she finally win that 24th Grand Slam and tie Margaret Court for the most majors all time? Serena has not won a slam since the 2017 Australian Open. That was when she won the slam while pregnant with her, chi- her first child, took the rest of that year off, came back late in the year in 2018, actually came back in midsummer, went out in the fourth round of the French Open, got to the finals at Wimbledon and at the U.S. Open, lost both of those, also played very uneven tennis in between those points. Now, that everyone remembers Serena, everyone remembers the controversy at the U.S. Open. What people don't realize is that after that tournament, she skipped the rest of the year. Usually after the U.S. Open, there's an Asian swing where a lot of players go to play in China and Japan, play hardcore tournaments. Serena skipped that swing to rest and recover and get herself ready for the season. She is looking to tie Court's all-time Grand Slam record in Court's home country because Court was Australian. She has success here. She's won here a couple of times. Again, won in 2017, never defended that title because of the pregnancy. But can she do it here? Can she get that one slam and tie Court and possibly look for the second later in the year to set the all-time record? We'll see. That's number two. Three. Next up, the other women's players to watch. Can you remember anybody who won this tournament last year on the women's side? Anyone? Bueller. It was Caroline Wozniacki. She won her first Grand Slam, but did nothing much with it the rest of the way. A disappointing finish of the season. How she defends her title will be interesting to watch. Who are the other players to watch here? 
does Maria Sharapova bounce back after, again, like Serena, didn't do much after the U.S. Open. See how she does as she gets into her 30s. Sloane Stevens has had deep runs here before, got to a final here. Can she win her second slam? She can win on this surface. We'll see. Madison Keys, another American, also had success here in the past. Has not won a major yet, looking for her first slam. Uh, Simona Halep, current world number one. Won her first slam last year at the French. Has had good results in Australia. There are a lot of unpredictable elements in the women's game right now. And that's a lot of fun. For the past, I'd say, 15 years, it's been Serena and everyone else. Now, everyone else started to catch up with Serena. You had four different slam winners last year. Four. Now, you're going to see which women step up and make deep runs. Who wins this tournament? It's going to set the tone for the year. I think it'll be fun there. Let's go to the men's side for our next headline. Four. Is this a start of Novak Djokovic's second wave at the top? Last year started, it was basically Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal. Roger won the Australian Open. Rafa won the French. And all of a sudden, Novak Djokovic, who had been world number one for a while, basically fell apart for a while due to injuries and some off-the-court stuff. He came back, won Wimbledon, won the U.S. Open, did well at the year-end tournaments, and now he is coming back here to try and make it three straight slams. I am a big Djokovic guy. I think when he's on his game, he's one of the best in the sport to watch because he's very entertaining, very animated on the court, a lot of fun to watch him play. And people don't realize he is dominant down here. He's dominant in Australia. He has won the Australian Open six times, including, I believe, three or four years in a row from 2012 to 2015. He hasn't won here a couple of years, so he's due for another one. He is due to play very well here in a deep run. Do not be shy. He's holding up that trophy in two weeks. Five. All right, let's go next to Roger Federer. He's the defending champion. He won this tournament last year. He's starting to slip a little bit, though. The end of last year was not kind to him. He had a rare meltdown at Wimbledon where he was up a set and a break with championship point against Kevin Anderson. Blew that, lost the match. U.S. Open came out, lost in the fourth round to a journeyman, John Millman. That's the thing I never thought I'd be saying on this podcast again, but that happened. And Heat blamed him for that one. But remember, Federer is 37 years old. Father time always wins. Has Father Time come off to Roger? What happens here will be very interesting to watch because he's had deep runs in this tournament on this surface, which is not kind to older players. It takes a lot of physical toll on you to play on a hard court for that many matches in a row. Can he win another one? We'll find out. Six. Next up, where is the next generation of men's players? I found a fascinating stat in Tennis Magazine the other day. And did you know that no man under the age of 30 has won a Grand Slam title? No man under 30 as a Grand Slam champion in men's tennis, which is incredible. The big three, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, have won 51 of the 64 slams since 2003. That is an extended 15-year run of dominance over this sport, and they're all getting up there. Roger's 37. Nadal is 32 with knee issues. Djokovic is 31. It makes you wonder, when is this next group coming? 
the big guy, most talented guy in the field who hasn't won yet is Sasha Zverev. He beat both Djokovic and Federer in the ATP Finals last year, but he's never been good at the majors. He usually flops somewhere around the third or fourth round. Will this be the slam where he makes his big breakthrough and wins one? That'll be fun to watch. Another guy, Nick Kyrgios, the Australian. Very talented, as talented as anybody in the sport, but he is a complete head case. And again, we have to see it with him. He has these good moments where you're like, wow, this guy is really good. This guy could win like every major. And then you have the other moments where you're like, what are you doing, dude? Why are you acting like this? Just play the tennis. Come on now. There are other options. There are people to watch. Grigor Dimitra has always been called a baby fed. We'll see if he breaks through. Some young Americans like Francis TFO. Who is that guy? Who is the next superstar in American tennis? This generation of studs has held them off for a long time. Will this be the major? Will this be the year where one them breaks out and somebody under 30 wins a slam? We'll find out. Seven. My picks. My picks for the final. On the women's side, I'll go with Serena Williams. I know I've been rolling the last two majors with her, but I feel like she's due. I feel like the skipping the Asian swing in September and October helped her out a lot, got her a chance to rest. Take a break from the game. Recharge your batteries. I think she'll do well in Australia. I think she will win in tie court and get that 24th slam. Men's side, I'm going with history here. Sorry to the under-30 generation. You got to wait a little bit. I'm taking Novak Djokovic in Australia. His favorite slam. He's going to win his seventh Australian Open title. That's your picks for the Australian Open. We'll keep you updated on that going forward. Up next, this week's two-minute drill. We've got the national championship game and the complete route. Clemson laid on Alabama. That coming up right after this. And backpedaling Lawrence flips it open. Wide open. Justin Ross off and running. The Alabama native wins the foot race. And Clemson strengthens its grip on this championship game. Wow. Gut punch by Clemson right there. The offensive line doing just enough to keep Quentin Williams and Anthony Jennings out to give Trevor Lawrence a chance to make that throw. Trevor was stumbling, but he wanted to turn his head quickly because he knew he had a big play. Nothing going right for Saban's defense. All right, and we're back this week, two-minute drill. That call you just heard courtesy of ESPN's Chris Fowler. The 80-yard touchdown about from Justin Ross and Clemson, and they took Alabama to the woodshed in that game. Clemson, the first college football team since 1897. To go 15-0 in a season. That's impressive. That's a very long time. And they hand Nick Saban his worst ever loss at Alabama. Under Saban, Alabama had never lost a game by more than 14 points. They lost by 28 in that 44-16 drought. And the thing I noticed watching that game, Clemson's speed on both sides of the football is remarkable. They simply ran Alabama out of the building on both sides. The offensive line, left tackle Jonah Williams, who many people think is a good pro and who is a mock to the Jets on a number of occasions. Williams got blitzed like crazy by Clemson's outside pass rush. And the speed on the outside on the on the offense. If we look at the wide receiving core. Ross, who was an Alabama native, who chose Clemson over Alabama, he just ran circles around that secondary. And one thing, another thing I noticed, Trevor Lawrence is a star in the making, and this guy is going to take the NFL by storm in a couple of years. 
Lawrence against a stacked defense full of future pros. Goes 20 of 32 for 347 yards and three touchdowns in the national championship game. Did I mention he's a true freshman? That's right. He was in high school at this point last year. Now he's a national champion as a freshman. And Clemson made made it known that they are on par with Alabama now, and they are the biggest threat to the sport in the next few years. Now, it's going to be fun to watch them going forward because both these teams might be right back here next year in this very game because while there's a lot of players on both sides going to go pro, the big guys, the quarterbacks, are both still here. Tua Tagovailoa from Alabama is only a sophomore, which means he cannot be turned draft eligible until after 2019 so he'll be back in Tuscaloosa this fall to try and get the tie back to the national championship Trevor Lawrence as a freshman two more years at Clemson minimum he said he wants to play three more and win three more championships but I don't buy that because if he's doing what he's doing now he'll be the number one pick in the draft in 2021 it's incredibly scary to watch these guys play and the rest of the sports on notice no one is beating either of these teams anytime soon it will take a monumental effort in recruiting. It will take a monumental effort in terms of team building. And you got to build quite the collection of talent to catch up with either of these teams. Would I be surprised if they face off the fifth straight time next year? No, I would not. I'm telling you right now, barring something catastrophic, barring major injuries or something really out of their control, these two teams will be back in the playoffs next year. You can put that in the bank. This college football season is about who the other two are and if they can beat either team. That's going to be interesting. We'll see what happens. All right, and that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Rob Carpenter, for coming on talk New York Jets football and the Jet head coaching search. I also want to thank my friend Justin Diaz for coming back to do NFL picks on the divisional round of Show Me the Money. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at why the Mets are not truly all in, despite what they will lead you to believe, be sure to check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for Just and the Suffering in the podcast store on iTunes and the Google Play music section. Be sure to leave your feedback and star ratings. I'll make this podcast even better going forward. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet at me with hashtag Matt Nagy's face. He made it to the end of today's show. Next week, our football run continues. We'll recap the divisional playoff round, set up the conference championship games, update you on the tennis situation at the Australian Open. The first week will be underway. All that and more coming up. Until then, I hope a better week than Cody Parkey. <laughs> <laughs>